you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you take them please and turn to the Gospel of John. Today we're looking at chapter 14 and verse 6. While you're finding your place in the scriptures, I want to say thank you uh, for uh, 34 wonderful years from this side of the fence uh, for the privilege of serving as your pastor. It has been and continues to be a wonderful blessing to Linda and myself. Uh, attribute a lot uh, to, of course, primarily, first and foremost, to the Lord. He's the one that's enabled all of us to be together and still smile at one another and love one another. I remember several years ago when I went in view of a call, First Baptist Church of, Quip, of uh, Cumbie, Texas. Um, uh, the pastor who was serving as interim was there that Sunday and uh, uh, Dr. John Wright, who for many years was pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Port Arthur. He had recently retired. I asked him, Brother John, what kind of advice would you give to me that would help me to be a, a good pastor? And I never will forget four words that he said, just love the people. So I've tried to follow that principle through all of those and those suggestions uh, through all of these years. Uh, and I love most of you. <laughs> I like all of you. Uh, but you as a, a church family, the staff, we've got wonderful staff. I just thank the Lord every day for our staff and for my wife. I said to her the, this week, I said, honey, did you ever dream in your wildest dreams that we would be able to stay in Nacogdoches for 34 years? And she looked at me and said, Alan, honey, you've never been in any of my wildest dreams. <laughs> never know, do you? Well, we better get to the scriptures, I guess. But John chapter 14 and verse 6, a very familiar verse of scripture, is the basis for the message today, which is entitled simply, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. Newspaper columnist Kathleen Parker is no fan of Franklin Graham's. She made that perfectly clear in a column that she wrote that was printed in the Washington Post, criticizing Franklin Graham for saying that Muslims needed to be saved. Not only that, but his comment also got him removed as being the speaker of the National Day of Prayer Service at the Pentagon. But uh, Graham never did back down from his beliefs or from his statement referring to one of the main Hindu deities. He said, no elephant with a hundred arms can do anything for me. None of their 9,000 gods spelled with a little g is going to lead me to salvation. We are fooling ourselves, he said, if we think that we can have some great big kumbaya service and all hold hands and it's all going to get better in the world. It's not going to get better in the world. Kathleen Parker stated categorically that today, evangelicals under 30 years of age believe that there are more than one way to get to heaven. 
not just Jesus. And in response to that, Franklin Graham did not back down. He said, I don't believe that you can get to heaven through being a Buddhist or a Hindu. I think Muhammad only leads to the grave. To say that all religions are equal insults thoughtful followers of every religion. Talk to your Muslim friends for a while and you'll discover that their beliefs and our beliefs are radically different. Talk to a Buddhist and you'll discover that their beliefs are different from ours as well as from the Muslims. The same is true for followers of Judaism, Hinduism, or any other religion. It's easy to say that all roads lead to heaven when you haven't studied the map carefully. What we need is an accurate roadmap that tells us which road leads to heaven, find that road, and you will end up in the right place. In John 14, 6, Jesus answers the three greatest questions of the human heart. How can I be saved? Jesus said, I am the way. How can I be sure that I am saved? Jesus said, I am the truth. Well, how can I be satisfied? Jesus said, I am the life. Now, it is Thomas who poses the question for us when Jesus broke the news to them as the opening chapter 14 says about his going to heaven and that in the Father's house were many mansions. Thomas, you may remember earlier, recorded in the 10th, 11th chapter of John's gospel. When news came to, to Jesus and the disciples that Lazarus was uh, very sick. And uh, Jesus, after the messenger left, said to his disciples, he is asleep. Well, they thought that he was talking about, you know, just lying down and going to sleep. But the scripture very clearly says what he meant by saying that Lazarus was asleep was that he was dead. And so Jesus said to the disciples, uh, let's go to Judea and be there for them. Now Judea, Thomas is the one uh, who spoke up and said, well, well, Lord, if we go back to Judea, it wasn't but just a few days ago, they were ready to stone you to death. And Jesus nonetheless said, we're going. And so it's Thomas who turns to the other disciples and said, let's go with him and die along with him. So Thomas was under the impression that for them to go back to Judea would certainly mean death for Jesus. And there being his disciples, possibly for them too. So now in the 14th chapter, Jesus is saying, I'm going away. And uh, they said, well, Thomas spoke up in, in verse five and he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And to that question, Jesus gave this answer, well, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. So there are three basic ideas that I want to follow this morning in the brief time that we have together. And so these three that are printed for you on your outline that will enable you to keep up with the message and you can punch your husband when we get to the last one to wake up. First, man is lost and needs a way. Secondly, man is ignorant and is in need of truth. And finally, man is dead 
and in need of life. And by the term man, of course, I'm referring to mankind. Everybody, male, female alike, every individual, the word man is being used as a reference to every human being. So everybody's lost and in need of a way. Everybody is ignorant and in need of the truth. And every man and individual is dead and in need of life. So let's begin with this first idea about man is lost and is in need of a way. And I'm using Luke chapter 19 in verse 10, the words of Jesus. For he said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost. We understand what it means to be lost. A, a child wanders away from uh, his or her house and goes walking in the woods and ends up being lost and the parents panic and rightly so and a search has begun because the child has been separated from those who love her or him and uh, they, they can't find their way back home and, and so they are lost. You go to the doctor and he says to you, you have an incurable disease you're losing your health. You can't regain it. So we have some idea of what it means to be lost, but what do you mean to say when you say a person is lost? What, what do you mean when you say someone is lost? Well, I'd like to take the word lost, L-O-S-T, and use it as an acrostic to explain what is meant by a person being spiritually lost. Let the letter L stand for lifeless, lifeless. In the book of Ephesians chapter two and verse one, the Bible says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Now he's talking to individuals who are alive physically, but who are dead spiritually. And there's a difference there. There are two different kinds of death. There's a physical death. And there is spiritual death. And he's talking about spiritual death in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, where we are not, the, before you were saved, you were not alive spiritually. You were alive physically, mentally, but not spiritually. Over in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 23, I believe it is. Uh, where Paul describes the human being as having spirit, soul, and body. So all of us are made up of three parts. I have a body, you have a body. Uh, I have a soul, or I am a soul, so are you. And uh, I have, I'm spirit, and you're, you're spirit as well. The body, of course, is the physical body of, of skin and bone and blood and tissue and muscle and so forth that we live in. So uh, my body is the house that I live in while I'm here on this earth. But on the inside of this body, I, I, I live in this body. So I'm looking at you through the windows of my body. We call them eyes. So I can see you through my eyes. You see me through your eyes. And my soul consists of intellect, will, uh, and um, I'll think of the third one here in a minute. Intellect and will and emotions. So I, I have an intellect. You have an intellect. We can think for ourselves. Uh, we have emotions, we weep and we cry and we moan and we, we're happy and we're ecstatic and so forth. But then we have intellect. Intellectually, we can make decisions and choices. But then there's that third part of us that's called the spirit, the spiritual part. That spiritual part of you, of myself, is what differentiates us from, from animals and plants. 
Animals have a soul. You, you take a cat or a cat has a will of its own. You ever tried to get a cat to do something it didn't want to do? He's not going to mind you. Uh, dogs have a uh, intellect and, and, and they, they make decisions. You can teach a dog to do all kinds of things. A dog has emotions. A dog can weep and wail and howl and cry even. Uh, but those animals don't have a spiritual part about them. You and I, that spiritual part of us is that part of us that enables us to, uh, to communicate with God and to have a real personal spiritual relationship with the living God. And Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter two, before you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you were spiritually dead. You were not alive unto the Lord. In Luke chapter 15 and verse 24, Jesus said, for, the son of, uh, for this son of man was dead and has come to life again. He was talking about the prodigal son, you remember, who took his fa father, his portion of the inheritance, went off to a far country and wasted it and, and, and then came back in a repentant spirit and the father welcomed him back and, and he said, this is, uh, son of mine was dead, but now is alive. And so to be spiritually dead means that you do not have any spiritual life. You are lifeless spiritually. The letter O, I suggest to you, stands for oppressed, oppressed. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And it is out of this slave, word slave, that I get the word oppressed or bondage. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't control sin. When you, when you commit sin, you may think, well, I'm, I'm in charge. I'm in control. I can handle all of this. And you can't explain, well, why later when the temptation comes back, you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. And it's because Jesus said in essence that when you commit a sin, you become a slave to sin. Sin and Satan becomes your master and you are in bondage. You are oppressed. Then the third thing, the letter S, stands for separated, separated. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time, that is, before you were saved, you were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The com word commonwealth means citizenship, so you weren't a part of the nation of Israel, nor were you a part of the covenant that God had established with them. So you were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship or commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So did you pick up on those words? Separated, excluded, strangers, no hope, without God. So a person who has never been saved, never trusted Christ as Savior, is separated from God. You go back to the third chapter of the book of Genesis and you discover that Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, could no longer enjoy the same kind of relationship that they had had with the Lord prior to their disobedience. Now when they hear the voice of the Lord, instead of welcoming him with open arms, they are running and hiding themselves. They are naked. Now Adam tries to get some leaves and sew them together or put them together in some way to cover up their nakedness. 
Things were no longer the same between them and the Lord. Sin separates us. And the prophet also talked about how that our sins separate us from the Lord. It's not that he cannot hear us. It's not that he doesn't have the power to redeem us. The problem is sin serves as a barrier between ourselves and the Lord. And so it separates us from God. The letter T in the word lost, I'm saying to you, represents the word thirsty, thirsty. In John chapter 7, beginning with verse 37, Jesus said, Now on the last days, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And what he's talking about here, the living water, that that every individual has a thirst and a hunger for God because you were created for God, you were created by God, you were created to have fellowship with the Lord. And, and, and sin uh, separates you from the Lord and you, be, you, you, you become dried up, so to speak, uh, uh, spiritually. And you have a drought in your soul. And yet there's this thirst here, the hunger that you have. And, and you try to fill that space in your heart with everything else, looking for satisfaction here, there, and the other place. When Jesus is all the time saying your soul is dried up, it's in a drought, you're thirsty, I can give to you the water of life and it will be in you like uh, an artesian well just springing up into everlasting life. To the woman at the well, as recorded in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus said to her, if you drink of the water that comes from this well, you will thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give to you, you'll never thirst again. It will be into you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So to be lost spiritually means that you have no life, you are oppressed and in bondage to sin, you're separated from the Lord, and yet you have a hunger and a thirst for God. Three things on your outline that expands this idea as Jesus being the only way. Jesus is the only way to God. He himself said that in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You don't get to the Father by being a member of or a part of a certain sect or religion or denomination. You don't get to the Heavenly Father by being a member of a particular church or a fellowship of any kind. There is only one way to the Father and that one way is exclusively is the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the way No man, no individual, man or woman, can get to the Father except through me. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the intermediary. He is the one who stands between us and the Lord. It is Jesus who through his death on the cross, you might say, took man's hand and God's hand and through him brought us together. So there are not many ways to heaven. There's only one, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ to God. Secondly, Jesus is the only way to salvation. 
In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, the Bible tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, other, uh, other name under heaven whereby a man may be saved. You may remember when the angel spoke to Joseph about Mary being with child, and he was contemplating uh, doing away with her through a divorce, uh, said to him, don't be afraid or hesitate to take Mary to be your wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. When he is born, you will name him Jesus. And Jesus means God saves. So Jesus came into this world primarily to offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins and therefore bring us salvation. He is our salvation. Salvation is not a creed. Salvation is not a code. Salvation is not a church. Salvation is Christ. Salvation is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And the third thing is Jesus is the only way to heaven. Only way to heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. I want you to take your Bibles, just keep your place here, and turn to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts. And we'll begin with chapter 9. And I'm just quickly going to show this to you. We don't have the time to elaborate on them. But it's interesting to me that in, in, the, in the early years of the church, that people who followed Christ were known as people of the way. They were not called Christians until later at Antioch. But prior to that, followers of Christ were identified as being people of the way. And the word way would be spelled with a capital W in your Bible. At least it is in mine. So in Acts chapter 9, look at verse 2. Now Paul, at this time, his name is Saul. And he's a Jew. He's a devout Jew. Uh, he is the leader of the persecution of the church. It is later while he is on the road to Damascus that he is saved and his name is changed from Saul to Paul. But right now it's Saul. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found anybody belonging to the what? The way. The way. In my Bible, the word way is spelled with a capital W. Then if you would look, please, at chapter 19, just go to chapter 19, a few chapters over, but in chapter 19 and verse 9, in chapter 19 and verse 9, you, you find the word way spelled with a capital W again. In verse 9 of, of Acts 19, but when, uh, when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away uh, the disciples uh, and so forth. And so the word way is spelled with a capital W. And then if you look in chapter 23, in chapter 23, uh, uh, no, excuse me, uh, uh, chapter 22 and verse 4, chapter 22 and verse 4, you'll find the word way again. I persecuted, he's giving a testimony, Paul is, and he said, I persecuted this way to, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And then the final reference, of course, uh, is in chapter 24, chapter 24 and verse 14 and verse 22. 
Acts 24, 20, uh, 24, 14. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they have called a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. And if you skip down into verse 22, but Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, uh, when Lysia, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. And I'm just pointing those verses of Scripture out to you to indicate to you that the people in the early church were known as people of the way. They recognized Jesus as the only way to God, to salvation, and to heaven. Now, this brings us to the second idea that man is ignorant and in need of truth. In Galatians 4.8, the New Living Translation says, Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called God, spelled with a little g, that do not even exist. And in Ephesians 4.18, he says from the New Living Translation, Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. So prior to... You're having been saved or anybody being saved. Uh, we are ignorant about the Lord, about what he has to offer and the kind of salvation that he provides for us. Thus, Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. Now, the word truth means reality. I'm the real deal, you might say, to put it in our uh, terminology. Uh, the word truth means reality. It means factual. It means genuine. It means real. You know, many true things can be said about Jesus, but we're not saved by truths about him. We are saved by him who is the truth. He is the personification of the truth. Christ is the full and final revelation of God. Truth is not to be found in a system of philosophy, but in a person. Jesus Christ, he is the truth. And prior to your being saved, a person is ignorant of that fact. An example, the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, takes his father's por his portion of the inheritance. He goes off into the far country. He spends it. He wastes it. Uh, a drought occurs. He's hungry. He's eating the same food that he's feeding to the pigs. But the Lord begins to speak to him. And, uh, and, and he begins to say to himself, uh, uh, well, verse 24, Luke 15 says that he came to his senses, came to his senses. You might say, well, while he was away from the father, he was just out of mind, out of his mind. But he came to his senses and he realized that his servants back home in his father's house were doing better than he was. So what, I'll, I'll just get up. I'll go back to my father. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And you do both. When you sin, you don't just sin against your loved ones or your friends or whoever it is that you're in cahoots with. First and foremost, you sin against God. You remember when uh, David was praying as recorded in Psalm 51, asking the Lord for forgiveness of sin. He said, Father, against you and against you only have I sinned. Now he had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Bathsheba's husband. He had sinned against his people, sinned against himself. But first and foremost, he said, Father, I have sinned against you. David came to realize after Nathan the prophet pointed his finger in his face and said, you're guilty of adultery that he came to his senses. The same thing happens to the gathering demoniac. You remember, he was possessed with a demon or several demons. 
and uh, that he, he was so wild and uncontrollable, nobody could control him. They had put chains on him and he just broke them. Uh, he, he was naked. He was running around in, uh, in the cemetery. That's where he lived. He would, he would howl and cry out and moan all times of the day and the night. And, and Jesus uh, cast all of these demons out of this man. And, and, and of course, the, the people who were in charge of the, of the pigs, uh, the hogs that were there, uh, saw the hogs go over the, the, the cliff of the mountain and they ran back into the city and brought the owners out there. And it says that when the owners of the pigs came and they saw Jesus and there was the Gadarene demoniac and he was sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. And you know, before you can be saved, you've got to change your thinking about who you are and who Jesus is. Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Where does conversion begin? You say, well, in the heart. No, it begins in the mind. You've got to change your thinking about yourself and about God and about Jesus. You're not as good as you think you are. And God is a whole lot better than you think he is. And you've got to come to the point in your life that, Lord, I am miserable. I am undone. I am a sinner. And when you come to the realization of that and you're under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, a light comes on in your mind and in your heart. And you realize the only way is through Jesus. And he is the truth. Not only is Jesus the truth, but the Holy Spirit is truth. John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the Holy Spirit plays a major role in your conversion experience. You cannot be saved without the convicting influence and power of the Holy Spirit. Who convinces you and convicts you that you are a sinner and in need of a savior and that Jesus is the only savior there is. That's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'll go away, I'll go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit when he comes back into the world. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So it is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to present to you Jesus Christ who is truth and that you are a sinner and need to be saved, and it is his power that brings about the miracle of regeneration. So Jesus is truth, the Holy Spirit is truth, but also the word of God is truth. In John chapter 17, verse 17, in his high priestly prayer, our Lord said, sanctify them in thy truth. Your word is truth. And so the word we call the Bible is the truth of God. And so man is ignorant and in need of the truth, and Jesus is the truth. This brings me to the third and final idea, and that is that man is dead and is in need of life. Going back to Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sin, verses 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved you even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ, and by grace you are saved through faith. So you need life. You're dead spiritually. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, 
By amen also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, when Adam sinned by taking of the forbidden fruit, and Eve had given that fruit to and tempted him to take it as well, he died. You remember the Lord said, you can eat of any fruit whatsoever, but you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you, the day you eat that of, you'll die. Well, you say, Pastor, he was still alive after he ate. Yes, but let me remind you, he died immediately in his spirit. He died progressively in his soul. And he died ultimately in his body. He lived to be 930, according to the scriptures. But he died through his act of disobedience. Death, spiritual death, came into existence. And through his act of disobedience, it was passed on down to their sons and sons and children and children until this very day. That when you were born, you were born with a sinful nature. You know, it's interesting. You don't ever have to teach a child to do what's wrong. You have to spank their little hands and say, don't touch that stove, it's hot. Don't do that, don't do that. You don't have to teach them to do wrong. You didn't have to teach you to do wrong. <laughs> you just do it naturally. You remember the verse of scripture where Paul says, in sin did my mother conceive me? Remember I told you before how I had a difficult time with that verse of scripture because I'm told in the Holy Scriptures that the sexual act between a husband and wife is a holy thing and a godly thing and a good thing. It's how you and I were conceived and where we were born. So what did David mean when he said, in sin my mother conceived me? Until I read it out of the Amplified Bible where there it is translated, my mother who conceived me is a sinner or was a sinner and I'm a sinner too. So when I was conceived and born, I inherited my mother and father's sinful nature. And I am a sinner and you are a sinner and we need a savior and Jesus is that one. I am dead spiritually, but I am alive unto Jesus. In 1 John 5 verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life and he who has not the son has not life. That's why Franklin Graham would say that Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and any other person anywhere in this world needs to be saved and there's only one place where that can take place and that's in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The life that Jesus gives to us is new. Romans 6, 4, that we are raised to walk in newness of life. A verse that I often quote when baptizing an individual. The act of baptism not only symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but also symbolizes your salvation experience. When the person is baptized, we say he's buried with Christ in baptism and he is raised to walk in a newness of life. And so Jesus gives to you a new life. He gives to you eternal life. You will live forever. Eternal life does not begin when you die and draw your last breath on this earth. It begins the moment you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. I've come that you might have life. And the third thing was that you might have it abundantly. It's new. It is eternal. It is abundant. It is rich and full with the grace of Almighty God. Now in conclusion, going back to the story of the prodigal son. The story of the boy and the story of the prodigal son knew his life was in a mess. 
and he knew that he was at fault. He couldn't blame his father, couldn't blame his brother, couldn't blame anybody. He had messed up big time and he was wasting away. And he says to himself when he came to his senses, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare and here I am starving to death in a pig pen. You see, it was not the badness of the sinner, but the goodness of the father that took him back home. I think this is what Paul had in mind in Romans 2 and verse 4 where he said, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Have you ever thought about that? The good things, the, the blessings that you have gotten in life, the kindness that God has shown to you, the purpose of all of that is so that you can say, God is so good to me. God is so kind to me. I can't wait to, to get into the right relationship with him. It's not my sins that drove me to Jesus. It was God's love and God's kindness and God's goodness. And so the boy got up out of the pig pen. And when he got close to home, his father saw him, ran to him, embraced him, and led him back home. The stains and smells of the far country were washed off the boy. He was given a new robe, a new pair of shoes, a ring to wear, a welcome home party. The past was forgiven and forgotten, and he made a new beginning. A new beginning. And any sinner can experience the thing. Same thing. Same thing. Let's bow together. Father, it is so encouraging to know that you love us the way that you do in spite of who we are and in spite of all that we have done. Sometimes we... We feel like we're not worthy, and we're not really, but we, we say, well, I, I, I can't be saved. I, I'm not worthy. I've, I've sinned too much. My sins are too many, and they're too great. You don't know what I've done. No, I may not, but the Lord does. And, and he says to you, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how many times you've done it. If you're willing to repent, if you're really, really ready to turn away from that kind of lifestyle that would lead you to at a, a Christless grave that you can come to Jesus and find forgiveness and find love and find satisfaction and find life. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that as we come now to this time of invitation that you will speak to our hearts and if there's someone here today who needs to trust you as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, bring conviction to them, convince them beyond a shadow of a doubt of the Father's love and that the life that awaits them and guide them and convict them, Father, that they might make that decision in a positive way to bring honor and glory to you and many wonderful, satisfying things to them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God is speaking to your heart today, you come. <laughs>